If you're not already turned to John 18, uh, make sure you're there because there is a lot of text. In a narrative section, it's, it's typically more helpful to go through a larger section at once. It's very easy if you only pick one or two verses in a narrative section uh, to really fail to grasp what's going on and maybe fail to grasp what the characters are experiencing. And so we have chosen to go through uh, quite a, a, a chunk this morning, 15 to 27. And so I do encourage you to make sure your Bibles are open to that so that you are following along. I will need those. I'm not that much of a free spirit, um, but trust that God has uh, prepared what he wants to say to you. And before, I, before I speak, I do want to pray and ask God for his help. Lord, as your word is declared, we see before us um, a, a pristine mountaintop, Lord. The pure word of God declared among us. And God, you have called me to explain it uh, to your people. So God, I tremble uh, before the foot of this mountain, asking you to help my mind and my words be pleasing and acceptable to your sight, Lord. May we reflect on these things and be taught of the Lord so that we would be a changed people, Lord, that when when people discuss Christianity, they'll think of us and they'll say, we see lives transformed. So God, we ask that Christ would, would be pleased as he walks among us this morning, as he, as he is amidst his church, Lord, um, that you would fan into flame our lampstand, God, that it would burn bright here in Smith Falls, Lord, as a place where your word is declared and your truth is believed. So help me now, Lord, help us now to believe this together. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, we've been working our way through the gospel of John as a church. We've been doing this for a number of weeks, in fact, um, years now. We're at a year and a half through the gospel of John. And if you think that's a long time, I'm actually a little bit surprised at how quickly we did get through it. And so, I am very excited and and, uh, and, and have anticipation for these last chapters, this, the trials and the death and resurrection of Jesus as John tells it. And as we come now to this narrative section that involves Jesus' trials before the Jewish and Roman authorities, we're in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life pre-resurrection. And these final hours can be hard to imagine. They can be hard to understand. It can be a little bit hard to follow the story because it's a little bit bizarre. It's just a little bit bizarre even to comprehend that this is truly what happened. It, it really defies our sense of human decency, honesty, let alone justice. It really, it's hard to imagine that people behaved in this way against the Son of God. And so what's going on here is that Jesus had been in the garden with his disciples and Judas had notified the authorities that it was probably the most ideal time to arrest Christ. He had spoken about his death at the Last Supper. So maybe it's possible Judas thought Jesus is in a little bit of a surrendering type mood, like he's given himself over to the reality that he's going to die. And so 
he went out at night and he went to the authorities and he let them know, now is the time. If you want to strike, if you want to get Jesus by stealth, which they specifically wanted to do, he said, now is the time. And so they came to the garden. They came with weapons and clubs and torches and lanterns. And Christ surrendered himself. He showed himself clearly. And we saw last week how Jesus was not like Adam in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was paradise, which was Adam's and Eve's to lose. And they lost it. And then Jesus was in a near torturous garden of the fall. And he in his surrendering, is regaining paradise for man. It's this beautiful parallel that um, James Montgomery Boyce actually helped me to sort of piece that together, and I owe that to him. But he's been arrested and he's been led away, and so now the trials begin. The story is true. I just want to emphasize that to you this morning. This story is a true story. This really happened in the leadership of Israel and Rome at the time. Now, the story is not supposed to increase our faith and confidence in the wisdom of man or the eventual victory of justice as it's weighed out by men who have power. It's written to display Christ exactly as he meant to be displayed according to God's word. That's why this story was written. It's not at all for us to place our love and adoration in, in man and his systems and his motives, it's meant to contrast the wickedness of man and the goodness of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me go through the text and let's just figure out what's going on. And then we'll make some um, observations and significance claims and conclusions about it. So just going through what's actually happened. As I said, he was betrayed in the garden by his own disciple. This was key. Okay, it was key that it was one of his own who betrayed him because they led him to, that he led the authorities to Christ in a time where uh, he was secluded. There were no crowds around who might want to defend Jesus. There was no crowds who might want to stand up and rebel against Rome or the Jews and say, hey, this is a good man, because they thought he was a prophet, right? And so the authorities needed a secret time. That's why it was important that Judas helped them discover a secret time. And so they led Jesus away. He's bound. Okay, they tied him up. And so the Roman guards and the Jewish officials mounted what ended up actually being quite a hasty mission to arrest Jesus. It was ill-prepared. It was rushed. It was slapped together. Uh, They probably really did not want to do this during the feast. That's when the most amount of crowds were in Jerusalem, the Passover feast. It's very likely that they wanted to wait until after, but because of Judas letting them know this is the ideal time, Uh, God's sovereign plan comes together and Christ is crucified, uh, not as the lambs were being crucified by Israel, but as the lamb of God. He was sacrificed at the very time uh, when the lambs would have been slaughtered for the feast. And so God is just weaving this beautiful picture together of Christ, uh, the redemption and the final sacrifice for sin. And so they have their prisoner. They got him. He's bound. They've led him away from the garden. Jesus says, I'm going to drink the cup that the Father gave me. And so looking in verses 15, 16, and 17, we see Peter following Jesus. Peter, if you didn't know this, is Jesus' lead disciple. He's kind of the captain of the discipleship team, the discipleship squad. He's the lead guy. 
okay? He gets the most time alone with Jesus Christ. He gets the most amount of unique experiences with Christ. He got to be on the mountain with Jesus, etc. when Jesus was transfigured in glory. Peter is the lead disciple. But here we have two disciples. Look at 15. Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, not named. It could be that it's the author of this book who wrote that. He never names himself. The the author, John, in the Gospel of John, never names himself. He names a disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, and there's other mentions of, of that where there's no name used. It's possible that this other disciple was just maybe not one of the 12, or maybe he was one of the 12, maybe he was John. But it's another one. He considers himself of less significance in the story because he doesn't name himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So can you kind of see this? They're following Jesus maybe a slightly at a distance, but this one disciple is with Christ, and the high priest knew him. I don't think anybody could just walk into the court of the high priest. It was like the Supreme Court kind of. But this disciple was known to the high priest, and so he enters with Jesus. He kind of has a pass. He's allowed in. But Peter stood outside at the door, so presumably Peter was not known to the high priest. He wasn't allowed to just walk in. But what happens? The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So do you see what's happening here? They passed by this girl who's like a watch girl at the door. She's kind of keeping, making sure, hey, you don't know the high priest. You don't get to come in. But the disciple kind of leaves Jesus to go off with the guards and he goes back to the door and he says to the servant girl, I know the high priest and I know this guy, Peter. I know him. So this disciple actually vouches for Peter in their association with Christ. And the servant girl says, okay, he can come in. So Peter enters then the courtyard of the high priest. Now, this is so ironic because this is the setting where Peter first denies knowing Jesus right after the disciple who he was following Jesus with vouched for him to get inside because of Christ. Peter was only in this courtyard because he knew Jesus Christ. And yet it's the setting where he first denies Jesus And so we can see some irony being built here by John. This servant girl at the door was actually the first person to ask Peter about his relationship to Jesus Christ. If you look at her question, it's not dripping with accusation. It doesn't have the force of accusation behind it or strenuous questioning in the Greek. It's actually a question stated in the negative. It's somebody who is exhibiting some kind of uncertainty in their question. It's kind of like when you, you know, a husband, you want to ask your wife something and you know she's already told you and you're a little bit scared to ask a second time because you know you weren't listening. And it's like, you didn't say that that was going to happen, did you? Because I know that already, right? It's sort of this uncertain phrasing of the question. The servant girl says, um, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? So she's assuming the answer like, no, probably not. Peter really feels no force of accusation here, and yet impulsively, don't you see how he turns here? He said, I am not. I am not. Peter impulsively denies any affiliation with Christ, missing the fact that he's only there because he followed Jesus. Now, the fact that 
as I said, Peter was even in the court area with the arresting officers hours after Jesus, not even hours, probably moments after Jesus was taken into custody is quite conspicuous. I mean, what on earth is this fisherman doing in the courtyard of the high priest in the middle of the night? If he doesn't know Christ, he's obviously not thinking this through. Peter is known for being um, a little bit impulsive, sometimes not thinking through the consequences of what he's saying. And so he denies Christ. And, and we know that Jesus actually predicted this. He told Peter before the rooster crows, and you may know that a rooster crows at dawn. And I visited um, Guatemala in, in, a, in a place where this, they still have roosters who wake them up. We don't have roosters kicking around here in, in Perth or Smith Falls, but I remember the rooster crowing at about 4.35 in the morning, just when dawn was beginning to crack, and it made sure that you were up. We actually had a rooster living in our house with us in Guatemala, and so there was no mistaking when it was morning. And that's the same thing in this, in this um, kind of agricultural society. There's animals all over the city. And so Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows, before dawn, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times Jesus had predicted this in John chapter 13 to Peter. So Peter, already having the warning that this was going to take place, so impulsively denies knowing Jesus. So what happens after that? He goes and he makes a fire and he's standing with the officers warming himself. We know that in the garden, Jesus said, uh, if you're looking for me, then let my disciples go. So the disciples were no longer of interest to the arresting officers. So Peter is out by the charcoal fire with the officers, warming himself because it was cold. As I said, it was pre-dawn. You know that it's pretty chilly at three, four o'clock in the morning. So he's warming himself. And uh, we just see here the positionality of somebody who's not with Christ. We saw in the garden how Judas was standing with them, with the arresting officers rather than Christ. Wow, don't we see that right here with Peter? It was cold and Peter goes and makes himself comfortable. He goes and warms himself by a fire while Jesus goes in to face his accusers and the trial alone, his lead disciple. So then what happens? The trial begins. The high priest questioned Jesus. Now, I do need to help explain this a little bit because it says that they bound him and led him to Annas. But it was Caiaphas who was the high priest at the time. It was Caiaphas who said to the Jews, it's better that one man should die than the whole city should die. Meaning, if Jesus is going to stir up a revolution and cause our city to go into chaos, it's better that he be killed and our city is preserved. Now, John told us that he was actually prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the sins of people rather than for preserving um, geopolitical Israel. Nonetheless, Caiaphas is the high priest at the time, and yet it says they sent him to Annas, but, he, but they call Annas the high priest as well. It says the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. We know that Annas was the high priest. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. Now, what, what had actually happened in that office was it was kind of like being the president. Even though your time in office is over, Barack Obama still gets called Mr. President, as does George W. Bush. They're still called Mr. President. Now, they don't necessarily sit in the Oval Office, um, but there's a lot of respect given them, and it was the same way with the high priest. They were still called a high priest, and even Annas here is exhibiting some kind of authority. What he's doing here for Caiaphas is doing a bit of a pre-trial. And we have this in our court systems today, where you'll have a, um, 
a hearing to determine whether or not charges are legitimate, whether or not they can proceed into court. And so Annas is doing this for his son-in-law, Caiaphas. He's kind of uh, screening the cases that are going to come to him. So there's a bit of a pre-trial here. And John, our author, is the only one who covers this trial. He's the only one. The other authors cover the trial with Caiaphas. So that's kind of a two-part Jewish trial, if you can imagine that happening. And so he probed Jesus with two categories. Says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about two things, his disciples and his teaching. These are the two avenues by which you could most quickly get Christ to confess something that they might be able to pin to him as criminal. What about your disciples? What have they done? Have they violated anything in the Jewish law? Are they about to start a revolution? Are they about to break out against authority? What are your disciples doing right now? Are they planning a revolt to break you out? He's grilling Jesus about the disciples. What are your followers going to do now? And then also his teaching. Jesus' teaching was not without controversy. Okay, Jesus didn't just go around and say, hey, everybody just love each other. He did say, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus preached very specifically against Israel. He preached against the rulers of Israel, called them hypocrites. He told Israel that God's judgment was coming upon them. He spoke out condemning three specific cities by name. Jesus was a controversial character. He said things that were uh, way out of line if, if you're somebody who wants to become popular to everybody. And so they're grilling Jesus about his teaching. Now the trial itself was marred by haste. It was marred by a breach of, of justice. It was marred by breaking of Jewish um, protocols. It showed bias. It showed prejudice. It was everything wrong with the judicial system. So as they're grilling Christ, Christ is the defendant here. And in Jewish law, much like we have in Canada and the United States, um, there are laws against forcing somebody to testify against themselves. The Jews had this much like we do. There was no need for Christ to testify against himself. There was no legal way that they could force him to say anything. And yet here they are grilling him. Why? Because they were totally unprepared. They didn't have proper witnesses set up. They didn't have a proper charge set up. Uh, They just had their guy and they're trying to stick something to him. I'll just give you a couple examples of what was illegal about this. Number one, a trial by night was illegal. I mean, that seems pretty basic, right? Anything done at night, there's less people around, there's less accountability. Uh, That's not a a symbol of good justice to be done in the dark. I mean, it's symbolically telling of what was going on, happening in the darkness, happening without witnesses. Number two, the accused has no defense. Where's Christ's lawyer? Where's Christ's witness? Where's somebody to defend his character? Because all the claims that he made, uh, they could be backed up if they had just brought in an Old Testament scholar. To say, hey, Jesus' life actually does line up with the claims that he's made. There's no defense for him. There was also supposed to be, if a guilty verdict was handed out, there was supposed to be a span of an overnight period so that those who had sentenced the person to death could deliberate and pray and make sure they hadn't made a mistake before they killed somebody. Executed them, should I say. 
So there's supposed to be a, a, a span between trials so that it could be done in, in a calm and meditated way, but that did not happen either. There was also a unanimous verdict among the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 rulers. Uh, Mark tells us that they all agreed together that he was guilty. And in fact, in Jewish law, if the verdict was unanimous, if every single person said guilty, it would actually deny the charge. It, it couldn't be stayed. The conviction couldn't be stayed if all 70 said guilty because it showed some kind of lack of somebody being a defendant for them. It's kind of opposite in today. And, and whether or not it's right, that's the Jewish law, how they had it today. We might have, today you need a unanimous jury to convict somebody of death. Well, in Jewish culture, it was actually the opposite. It kind of showed that maybe something was up. There was something going on. Maybe there was some bias. Maybe somebody had got to them and bribed them or something. And why was there a unanimous decision? There are so many ways that this trial was illegal. And they were flying through it because they had to dispose of Christ. Why? Why did they hate Jesus so much? Again, this story kind of defies our sense of decency. It defies our understanding of what it means to be a respectable society. Remember, Israel was chosen by God. Israel was chosen by God to be a light to other nations. They were supposed to be an example of what justice looked like. They were supposed to be an example of what godliness and respect looked like. They were supposed to be the ones telling the world, this is what God looks like. And here they are with the Son of God in their hands, and they are stumbling over themselves to make sure that he dies. This tells you how far Israel had fallen from God from a heart to love God and obey and worship him. And it's the same reason why people hate the message of the gospel today. Push it aside. Say, we don't want to hear about that. We're happy to hear about God, but we don't want to deal with Jesus Christ because if what he said was true, it demands drastic action on my part. It demands drastic change in my life because Christ Unlike saying, well, all you need to do is follow the Ten Commandments, he came and he said, unless your righteousness is more than the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. Jesus Christ came and said, even if you follow the Ten Commandments perfectly, in your heart you have sinned against them, and that's enough to condemn you guilty to hell. Jesus makes it impossible to follow God unless you have his righteousness. Jesus was an extreme preacher. He was an extreme prophet, and the reason was is because he carried with him the authority of God because he is God. And that's why today in the preaching of Jesus Christ, there was such a haste to move it aside, to find some other way to explain away Christ. And we see that beginning here in the trial before his own people. We know that Jesus came to Israel first. He came to the Jews first to say, I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. And so in verse 20, Annas asks him these things. He says, what about your disciples? What about your teaching? And I love how Jesus answers. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. I love that. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. 
They know what I said. So Jesus is totally aware that they are grilling the accused and they have no right to do it. And Jesus says, you have no right to ask me. I'm the defendant. I'm the accused. I've said everything openly, publicly to the whole world. They know what I said. Go find your witnesses. That's what he's saying. Jesus knows his rights and he knows uh, what they are trying to do. And by no means is Jesus going to recapitulate or reestablish uh, his teaching to them. He's not going to go start back at the wedding of Cana and say, well, this is what I did first. First, I turned water into wine, and let me check my agenda. Then I did a few other miracles. Oh, yeah, then I had this really controversial teaching. You're really going to like this. I said these things, and people almost stoned me then. Jesus has no interest in doing that with them. He says, everything I did, I did openly. You can go ask anybody in the surrounding countryside, in the temple, in the synagogues. I said it openly. Now, I love that. Incidentally, I love that about our Christian faith. I love that that's our heritage, that nothing was done in secret. In fact, I was talking to somebody about the Book of Mormon this morning, and they'll come and Mormons will tell you that the Bible is unreliable. The Bible is, is a compilation of stories that can't be verified, but the Book of Mormon, that's what you can trust. And I say, you know what? The Bible was written publicly, circulated. People know when it was written, how it was written, by whom it was written. It was written by a multitude of authors. The Book of Mormon was written by one man in secret, in private. How do you trust that more than the scriptures? Our heritage is that it was a public ministry of Jesus Christ. It was attested to by Roman historians. It was attested to by Jewish historians. We know that what Jesus Christ said is true, and we know that it was him who said it. Christ says, everything I did, I did in public. Now, this is also important. He says, I said it where the Jews were gathered. He's saying, I didn't hide myself from you. This is a Jewish trial, remember? He's saying, I didn't try to avoid you guys. He's saying, you know, if I preached against you, it's not that I was going behind your backs and trying to stir up trouble against you. I came to you and I preached in your temple and in your synagogues. I preached to the Jews, he's saying. And so Christ points out their lack of preparation for the trial. And so they're furious. They don't like this answer. It says that in verse 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. This is the first physical abuse that Christ uh, was going to experience leading up to his crucifixion. This was the first hand laid against him. It's sad. It's like the first drip out of a dam that's about to explode. We know that Jesus was later whipped He was blindfolded and beaten with fists and feet and clubs. He was badly wounded beyond recognition. But this is that first strike against him. This is where tempers are starting to flare up. This is where hostility is starting to boil over against Christ. And he takes it, but what does he say back? They say, is this how you answer the high priest? And so... Again, the high priest who is supposed to be one who stands for justice, who's supposed to be one who intercedes for the people of God, is here exercising his lordship, his authority that he believes is given by God. He is lording it over Christ. His little piddly little bit of authority and recognition that he has thinks outweighs the weight of glory of the Son of God. And he allows his officers to strike the King of Kings, In his court, 
They're furious. And Jesus recognizes that they're just, they're lost. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus recognizes how unjust uh, this process is. He says, hey, if you can find something wrong with what I said, go find your witnesses and testify about it. This needs to be proven in court. And if you find something, then so be it. Christ is so confident in what he had done. But he says, if what I said is right, why do you have the right to strike me? And so he's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing their pride. And so that's the preliminary trial of the Jews. And then we're going to go on and we're going to see Jesus, um, Peter's second two denials. Um, John picks up again where he left off with Peter in verse uh, at the end of verse 17, he says, or 18, he says that Peter was with them warming himself. Then jump down to verse 25, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, You are also one of his disciples, aren't you? So now he's standing by the fire. And now these are the guards who are saying, Hey, you're one of him. Now there may be the dawn is starting to crack or whatever, but they start to recognize him maybe from the garden. And the officers say, uh, Didn't you, um, weren't you in the garden with Christ? And he denied it again. He said, no, I'm not. He denied it. And then we have a set, his third denial. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And a rooster crowed at once. So this, these last two accusations, one is done by the officers who say, you are probably one of his disciples, weren't you? And he says, no. And then the next one is a witness who saw Peter in the garden. This is not from like earlier in Jesus' ministry, like maybe last year or last month. This is somebody who saw Peter with Jesus that very night. And I don't know if you remember, but Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of, of Mal- is his name Malchus or Malthus? Malchus, yeah. He cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it. And a relative of Malchus, who's maybe even a little bit frustrated with Peter right now, a little bit angry, maybe feeling a little bit of family defensiveness here. But he's obviously very close to the situation. His cousin was wounded by Peter because of the arrest of Christ. There's very good linking evidence here for Peter to Christ, and Peter again denies it. His denials here are brazen. They make no sense. You ever ask your kids a question or somebody just, it's so obvious that they have done what you are accusing them of, and they still say no. And you just wonder, why are you so trapped in self-denial? This is Peter. Why are you denying? They've seen you. This is the third person. It's not just a one-off person that you can just sort of brush off like the servant girl. This is somebody who saw you in the garden, Peter. Peter, is, he's deluded. He's self-deceiving. He says, no, I, I didn't. Another one of the Gospels tells us that he swore an oath saying, I did not, I tell you the truth, I did not, I was not with Jesus Christ. And what does it say? At once, a rooster crowed. It was like the rooster was being held off until that moment where Peter uttered his third denial. Jesus' words are per- literally perfectly fulfilled here. In other, in other Gospels, um, we're told that when Peter heard the rooster crow, he wept bitterly. Another gospel says he broke down and wept. 
Because suddenly it dawned on him what he had done and what he had gone to such great lengths to do. He ran as hard and fast as he could uh, mentally and verbally away from knowing who Jesus was and denying his affiliation with him. And he recognized that immediately. He made a vow to Christ, I will die with you. And then he went off and denied him just as quickly as he had promised his loyalty. And so he wept. He wept over his failure. And that's the narrative of what we see here. And I just want to show a couple synoptic comparisons, meaning I want to show a couple things that are going on in this moment from the perspective of the other gospel writers. And then I want to show what I think John is giving us as the significance. So what I want to point out about this is that John does not include the more famous trial um, where he's standing before the high priest Caiaphas. He doesn't include that trial here. And I think there's reasons for that. He's chosen this pre-trial for a reason. Now, again, it's possible that he was the disciple who was also following Christ, and he witnessed this whole pre-trial. That's how he saw this happen. He was a first-hand witness. That's possible. But either way, this is the more minor trial. It's much less heated, even though one of the officers does boil over and strike Christ. It's less heated um, than the main trial before Caiaphas. Mark 15, and, and I had mentioned that these trials happened before dawn. Mark 15 tells us that as soon as the morning came, that Jesus moved into the Roman court, that they took Jesus to see Pilate as soon as it was morning, which means the Jews amongst themselves conducted both trials before dawn. The Jews were trying to do this in secret so that people would not know what they were up to. They knew that they were ashamed, that it was a shameful thing. Uh, This two-part trial, more specifically the trial with Caiaphas that we don't read about in our passage, was witnessed and ruled over by a group called the Sanhedrin. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's a group of 70 men who were the top rulers in Israel. They were the the most honorable, the most high and advanced in Judaism. They were the ruling elders over Israel, 70 men. And it says that all 70 of them testified that Christ was guilty. 70 people, not a jury of 11 or 12, but 70 found Christ guilty. Paul the apostle actually is likely to have belonged to the Sanhedrin. A little bit later. He was younger, and so he might not have been at this time. Uh, But it's very possible through some of textual evidence later in the New Testament that Paul actually belonged to this ruling class of Jewish elders. And it says that these 70 men were seeking testimony. Again, this is in other Gospels, uh, that they sought testimony against Jesus, which means they were looking for people to say something that would condemn Jesus Christ. And it says very specifically, they found none. Bible tells us that, that they were seeking testimony against Jesus Christ and they could not find any. This is what's so amazing is that Jesus passes through three separate courts, none of which could find any guilt with him, and yet he comes out with the death sentence. This is what's going on here. Do you see the miscarriage of justice on man's part? And yet Jesus knew he was innocent, and he knew that he was going into it to lay down his life. He knew that even though he was innocent, these courts would not find him innocent. They would find him guilty because he said, this is exactly what God has planned for me. This is the cup that God has given me to drink. It also tells us that they did find some testimony, what little testimony that they found 
actually contradicted too much to be useful. People lying, people trying to get their time in the sun. You know, when there's maybe a class action lawsuit and somebody comes out and talks to a tabloid and says, oh, I can tell you this sensational story about the accused, but nobody can back it up. And it's a headline that burns up in the sands of time. This is maybe what was happening. They wanted to be connected with this famous character and they came out and they told lies about him and their testimony did not agree. Jewish law also stated that there had to be two or three witnesses in order to condemn somebody. So one person couldn't just come out and say, oh, I heard him say this. It had to be two or three, and they could not even find two witnesses to have enough of a story that fit together. And it's in the trial before Caiaphas that we see their deep hostility against Jesus Christ, and we also find the conviction of the death penalty. Now, Annas did not do that. After Jesus said, why do you strike me? It says that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so that's what's going on here. Annas just says, look, okay, he's not going to give me any information to pass on to the next court. Um, Annas is maybe a little bit more sensible. Maybe he's a little bit older and wiser than Caiaphas. But either way, Jesus moves on to Caiaphas at that point. And it's Caiaphas who grills him. And he gets a confession out of Jesus Christ. One single confession. Luke twenty two sixty nine. Jesus says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. That's Jesus' confession in the court. From now on, you will see the Son of Man. That's the title he gives himself. It reminds us of Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God from now on. And Caiaphas, we're told, tears his robes. He is so angry and he says, listen to this blasphemy. We don't need any more testimony from him. We have enough to convict him because he has claimed to be God. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is to speak in a profane or unholy way of God. It's to somehow bring God out of his glory. And that's what they claim Jesus had done. By claiming that he was equal with God, he was saying that I, as a man, am co-equal with God who is untouchable and unapproachable and glorious. And they said, that is blasphemy. You're making God unholy by you being a man claiming to be with him and seated at his right hand. But you know what's so ironic? That's why they condemned Jesus because they claimed that he was making God unholy. But isn't this the good news of the gospel? That God condescended his glory to come down as a man, to be tempted as we were, to live among us, to live a righteous life, so that he, as a man, could die as the penalty for our sin and in exchange give us his righteousness. Where Adam failed to give us a heritage of righteousness, Christ came along as a second Adam and said, I now offer you my righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel, that God did condescend from his glory. He came down out of heaven and dwelt among us. The Old Testament says, For unto us a child is born and a son is given, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was almost incomprehensible to Israel, so much so uh, that they hated Christ for making this claim because that would mean that his authority was above theirs as the leaders in Israel. 
And so they condemn Jesus Christ for the very reason why the gospel is such good news that God has come among us. And so rather than prayerfully execute the judgment of the death penalty, which they proclaim over Christ, Caiaphas does, the conviction is stayed and the, the Jewish court closes and they send Jesus off to the Roman court to, to carry out the judgment. And I'll, and I'll cover this more next time, but basically the Jews were like a state within a state. They were able to rule over themselves and abide by their laws, but if they wanted to put somebody to death, they didn't have jurisdiction to do that. They needed the Romans who were over top of them to carry out a death penalty, which is why Jesus was sent to Pilate after they had condemned him to death. They said, he has broken our law, he's guilty of death, and Pilate, we want you now to execute him. Which is why Jesus received a Roman crucifixion rather than a Jewish stoning as his form of execution. But we'll get to that in later weeks. So that's some of what's more going on beneath the surface pre-dawn here. But what I want to close with is the significance. What is John really telling us about this trial? What's the so what factor? So what? The trial was illegal. So what? Peter denied Christ on either side of that. What's the big deal? What's the larger story that John is telling us? John, as he typically does, draws our attention to something greater than just the bare facts of the story. John is always doing these neat little things where he will, he will omit things in the middle of Jesus' ministry so that you can see two pieces together sometimes. And it's interesting, when Jesus preaches on being the bread of life, and that people will be satisfied by him forever, it was right after he first fed 5,000 people miraculously. And they came back the next day because they were like, you got to come check out this dude. He feeds people with, with bread. Like he, he miraculously creates food. You have to come see this guy. But what did that tell them? That their stomachs were empty again. They had to come see Jesus. And Jesus takes those people with empty stomachs who are expecting loaves of bread. And he says, now I want you to understand that I am the bread of life. You will always be satisfied in me. And it's John who puts those pictures together for us so many times in his gospel. He's always comparing and contrasting elements which bring out a larger truth. He uses intentional literary devices and skills to give us a more full picture. And so in Peter's denying here, how does that fit in with the charges and the trial that he faces against Annas? And we have to kind of, what's the deal with Peter's denial? We can't help but question this sudden change. I mean, just in the garden, when he faced clubs and weapons and torches and this cohort of officers and soldiers, he pulls out a sword and attacks. I mean, don't you think he recognized he could have been swarmed and beaten to death by the soldiers in that moment? Peter has incredible courage. His impulsiveness lends him to this awesome, uh, reckless courage where he doesn't think about himself. He just attacks. He's so loyal to Christ, he lunges out and cuts the ear off this servant. And, and it's Jesus who says, put your sword away. I mean, he's quite lucky that the soldiers themselves didn't just strike him dead, right? So what changed in Peter? Peter went from this great courage to this denial, this threefold denial, not even just a slip of the tongue once. Peter, in fact, is the man of the great confession in the Gospels. He's the man who's always using his mouth to say the truth. He's giving us these amazing little quotables in Scripture. 
these confessions of who God is. In Matthew 16, it's Peter who says, when Jesus asks, who, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one who says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And, and Jesus says, God has revealed this to you, Peter. God has revealed this to you. You have a special revelation from God in your confession. In John chapter 6, Jesus sees a lot of his disciples leave. They abandon him when he teaches um, that God draws people to Christ. They leave. They say, we don't like that style of teaching. We don't like that doctrine. And Jesus says to them, would you like to go also? Are you guys going to leave? And it's Peter who speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter is the man of the great confession. Last in John 13, 37, this is perhaps the saddest one. Jesus says, you, you can't come with me, Peter, what I'm doing. I'm going to go lay my life down and it's just me who's going to do it. And Peter says, why can't I go with you? I will lay my life down for you, Lord. He's the man of the great confession. So what happened? Jesus' top follower, his chief disciple, the guy who he counted on most and poured the most amount of discipleship into is now committing the most devastating verbal separation from Christ. What happened? What happened with Peter? What is John telling us? We could analyze Peter's impulsiveness. Might help us understand why he slipped and why he ran after this so diligently. We could also maybe demonstrate that he had a lack of gospel recognition of who Jesus was, but I think multiple times we see that <clears throat> Peter actually knew exactly who Christ was. He understood who Jesus was, and he followed him to the courtyard. He knew that he had to cling to Christ. I don't think either one of those studies will reveal anything or help explain what happened with Peter. As I said, Peter was only there he was only in the courtyard to deny Christ because he had the courage to follow. We're told that in the garden, uh, the other disciples fled. <clears throat> they fled up maybe the Mount of Olives onto the other side back into Bethany where they had friends. They were like, maybe we'll be safe there. We'll just hide out till this all blows over. Peter and the other disciple follow the guards. Peter had courage. Peter was loyal. There's no question that Peter had his best intentions on this evening. He showed boldness and loyalty even in the face of the soldiers in the garden. Do you know what happened here? And do you know why John tells this story the way he does? I think that John is contrasting Peter with Christ. I think Peter is just any disciple who happened to be in the line of fire. Now, there are more specific theological reasons that I'll mention in a moment. But the truth is, he showed up. He was there. That's why they were questioning him. Any disciple would have been questioned the same way Peter had. And who knows what the others would have said. Peter denied Christ because he was in the line of fire because he was following him. He was there to be questioned and he felt fearful. He impulsively answered no. He impulsively responded with self-preservation. That's what happened with Peter. That's it. There's no deep psychological reason for it. He just messed up because he was a dude. He's a man. He's any disciple who would have been in the line of fire that night. And so Peter, John is contrasting Peter with Christ because Peter, when it came to affirming the testimony of Christ, failed, denied Jesus Christ. 
But when it comes to Jesus advancing his kingdom and doing his work, it's Christ affirming Christ that matters. It's Christ standing by his word in the trial that matters. When Jesus is confronted by the authorities, he does not deny. He does not back down. He does not change the message as Peter did. That's what we're seeing here. We see a denial, then we see the trial, and a denial again. Why would the two denials be framed together on the outside of this trial? It's because Christ in the middle is holding strong and holding fast to what he had done. He says, all my ministry was public. Everything I said is available. You can go ask. And I make no apology for it. That's Jesus Christ. That's when it mattered, is when Christ affirms himself. See, when it mattered most that his disciples maybe stick with him through the storm. If you're a leader, again, trying to start a movement, one thing you need to really secure is the loyalty of your followers, right? You need to gain some momentum. But when it mattered most that his disciples stuck it out with him through the courts, through the difficulties, through the accusations, none were there, not even his chief disciples. When it mattered most, nobody showed up for Jesus. I was just listening to a preacher this past week who used to work in the inner city, and he said, all these kids facing criminal charges, they're, they're part of gangs. They have, they have accusations with the police. They have all these things, and they have all these buddies who will take a bullet for them. But when it comes to court dates, none of them show up. None of them show up. Why? Because they don't want to come into the light. They don't want to show up at the court system and say, yeah, I defend my buddy. When it comes to really the brass tacks, nobody shows up for Jesus Christ. I think Peter's denial in the mind of John simply affirms God's word. It affirms God's word. It highlights Jesus Christ and his word. We also saw in the book of Zechariah, I don't know if you've ever read it or not, but there's a prophecy where God says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's how it was always going to go. When Jesus fell, to the Romans and the Jews, when he went to his trial, when he was convicted, nobody was there. They fled. Nobody stood by Christ when it mattered, when they needed a witness. I think Peter simply serves as a picture of every well-meaning believer who strives to please the Lord. Peter showed up wanting to stay loyal to Christ, wanting to be near him, wanting to be affiliated with him. But when it came to actually confessing Christ, he blew it. Totally blew it. He probably thought that was his chance because the rooster crows and he, he weeps bitterly. From another's perspective, and I'll share this from Luke 22, this is specifically given to Peter to do. As I said, it could have happened to any disciple, but it was chosen to happen to Peter specifically. And we know that Peter goes on to be the lead apostle in, in the conversion to the Jewish people. He preaches to Jewish people on uh, the day of Pentecost and 3,000 are converted. Peter is an integral piece of the growth of the church in the book of Acts. So what happens? Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Peter mentions that Satan had asked him to sift Peter like sand. He asked Jesus permission to go and shake Peter hard. And Jesus says, yes, you may. And so that... Isn't that amazing? Satan wants to test Peter. He wants to shake Peter up. And he does. And he, Peter falls and he cries. 
But, but Jesus says of this encounter that when you turn back, Peter, when you recover, when you're restored after your failure, you are going to strengthen others. If you have time this afternoon, go to Luke 22 and highlight that. After Peter fails, Jesus already has in mind what that failure is going to mean, and it's going to mean strengthening others. If you think because you have failed Christ or you blew it at a moment when you were supposed to be for him, turn back to him because Jesus uses Peter's failure to strengthen the church, to strengthen the other disciples because the other disciples were not even there to be tested. And yet what happens afterwards? The disciples gather back together and Peter is among the most confident and strengthened in their group because he knew the depths of his own failure and he knew the restoration of Jesus Christ. Although Jesus chooses to use these cracked and imperfect men what John is showing us is that he does not need to. He doesn't need the confession of Peter. He doesn't need Peter's loyalty that moment or his own defense because Christ affirms his own testimony and that is what truly matters. Friends, this is a study in the fact that God approves of and uses and, and loves his son. Christ is perfection. Man is not supposed to be um, these robocops of superpower following Jesus. That's not the picture of what a Christian is. It's not somebody so strong and so loyal and so clean and perfect um, that, that, that there's no crack in our armor. That's not the way it's set up. Jesus Christ is the immovable, unshakable, uncondemnable, perfect son of God, king of kings. We are just his followers. He takes care of his word. And again, we see that the questioning following Jesus is regarding his word. John speaks of this over and over and over again. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I have spoken my word to you, therefore you are already clean. He says this to Peter. And in the same way, they questioned his teaching, and Jesus does not deny or walk back on any of his teaching because he recognizing, recognizes that his teaching, his words, are what cleanse people. Come to Jesus Christ and believe his word and walk according to his word. Believe his word and you will be saved. You will be cleansed. You will be moved from death to life. As the scripture says elsewhere, a word that is fitly spoken is like a well-driven nail. It stays there. It hangs there. Have you ever tried to pull out a nail that had been in an old house for 30 years? It's almost impossible and Christ knew that every word that he had spoken was eternal, firmly fixed. The Psalms say, your word, O Lord, is firmly fixed in the heavens. And every word that Christ spoke was a word from God, firmly fixed in the heavens. And Jesus says, it's out there. It's in public. You can go ask them, and that's what's there. You'll have to deal with that on your own. Jesus was not ashamed of himself or of his words, and that's what truly mattered. What John is doing here is showing us that Peter faced a servant girl and denied knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus faced the ruler of Israel and stood by every word that he said. Isn't that incredible? When we face little anthills and we fail, we see Christ facing mountains. We see Christ going to war with the rulers of darkness and winning on our behalf. 
where we fail to pick up our feet and not stumble over cracks in the sidewalk, Christ is literally moving across the galaxy to be with us, to win us to God, to purify us for, his, for himself. He faces the wrath of God on our behalf. He doesn't turn aside the cup that God gave him, which is the wrath that you deserved and I deserved. Christ faces it, although with fear, he faces it willingly because he is the son of God and does not fail to obey God perfectly in everything. Where Peter messed up horribly, Christ succeeds magnificently. What John is doing is he's darkening the edges all around Christ. Everything around Christ falls to the background and falls into the darkness, and he alone shines as the light of the world, which is how John opened up his gospel. He said, the light has come into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In fact, the darkness hated the light because the light exposed the the deeds of the darkness Everything, including Peter, his chief disciple, is fading into failure where Christ is coming forward and we see him as magnificent and victorious and the son of God for all to see. So I'll just conclude with this. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus Christ at one time in your life. Maybe that's an old chapter in your history. I don't know where you're at with Christ, but what I want to ask is, do you trust him today? It's not enough to say, I confessed him at one time, because as we see, Peter made lots of great confessions, but he blew it that day. He needed to be restored unto Christ. I asked this morning, do do you need to come back and cling to the words of Christ? Do you need to hang your hat, hang your life again on Jesus Christ, where you once confessed him, where you once felt close to him. Maybe now you're distant. Maybe you need to come back. You need him today. It can't be something you did a long time ago, and hopefully that's good enough. You need Christ today because your faith does not rest on your confession of him, but his confession of himself. Now, we do need to confess Christ, of course. I don't want to minimize that. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you believe in your heart and and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But that's a position of the heart. Have you failed like Peter and wept bitterly over your failure? You know why we usually weep when we fail the Lord, when we fall into sin? You know why it's usually followed with tears? Because we let ourselves down. We thought we were better. We thought we were a better Christian. We thought we were a higher standard of morality. And when we sin, we are so devastated that we are not who we thought we were. That's very often the case when we are grieved over sin. It's because we haven't lived up to who we think we should be. This is why we trust in Jesus Christ, because he alone lives up to the standard that he demands. Christ demands perfection. Make no mistake. Make no mistake that Jesus demands nothing short of perfection. God demands nothing short of perfection. So for any of us to think that we're going to muster our way up to this level, we're going to be good enough somehow, and we're going to stop sinning and stop making these mistakes, we are totally lost. Usually we weep because our own image of ourselves are broken, which is why you need to do away with your own building up of your own morality. You need to run and hide yourself and abide in Jesus Christ because only he upholds the standard of perfection that he demands. Only him. As Peter denies Christ, 
Christ does not deny himself. He is faithful, though we are faithless. That is good news for Peter, and it's good news for you 